Well, the writer of Hebrews, uh, this mysterious kind of historic figure, uh, but we, we don't know who he is, but we do know that he received his message of salvation from his time with the apostles, and he is seeking to convince his Jewish audience, the Hebrews, and by extension you and I as we read this letter, of one central truth, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. His priesthood is, a, is better than Aaron's. Jesus institutes a better covenant on the basis of his complete work, his relationship with the Father. His blood is a better sacrifice than the blood of, of, of bulls and goats. Uh, Jesus provides a better rest. Um, Melissa Kruger, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, points out that in every way and at every turn, Jesus is better. And at the same time, we have seen it's not that the old system and the old practices were wrong. Uh, they were still informative. They were still prescriptive for life and faith. But they were anticipating something better. They were pointing to something better. Kind of like a, how a shadow gives an outline of the true object. And Jesus is the true object of faith that reconciles humanity uh, back to God. And one of these better themes, as, as we just ran through there, is rest. And it emerges in chapter 4. Rest in the scripture, uh, metaphorically, uh, in general terms, refers to God's blessing of safety, God's security, and God's salvation. Now, in the letter of Hebrews, it's Jesus who is presented as rest. Jesus Christ is fundamentally brings rest to the soul. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, there in chapter 11, uh, it is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus talks about his, his very heart, where Jesus lets us in to see the core of uh, how he sees himself, uh, how he sees himself to be. And Dane Ortland has written a book called Gentle and Lonely. And he says that when Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find is, is that he's gentle and lowly of heart. Essentially, he is the most understanding and approachable person you will ever meet. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating. The one who is infinitely powerful, who holds all of reality together with his words, invites us towards him in safety and approachability. And what does this infinitely powerful and, and tender Jesus give to those who approach him? Well, rest. Rest for the souls. Rest for souls that are heavy laden with the burden of, of attaining self-worth of uh, trying to derive their own acceptance, their own salvation from God. And Hebrews agrees. Jesus is the better object and means of faith and relationship with God. He alone provides rest for the souls, for, for what the soul is anxious for. So the warning is, be careful not to drift back into your abilities, uh, your works over God's. 
not resting in what God has done and who God provides for us to rest into. Take hold of this great salvation, die to work-driven salvation and be transformed by grace. It's this strange tension that's uh, summed up by Robert Muller when he says, we must work at resting. And we looked at this at the start of last year when we went through Philippians, yeah? We said we are called to work out of what God has already worked in us, laboring not for our salvation, but, but from our salvation. This is the dynamic of restful vigilance that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And Hebrews, this book, will remind us this, restless, this restful vigilance will one day give way to a rest that's kind of pictured in, in the garden. Well, it's not. It's actually literally pictured in the Garden of Eden or in places like Revelation 7. Rest from sin. Rest from all the decreational frustration that sin has brought into the human condition. But for now... Rest in Jesus' work to free you up, to be transformed without shame and guilt, condemnation. Rest in these new realities that we are brothers and sisters, that there is nothing to do to obtain this new status, but there is plenty to be as we maintain this new status. And the warning through these passages is don't be like Israel, who after being saved from Egypt by God were offered rest... And incredibly, I mean, after witnessing all that God did and his power and all of that to rescue them, incredibly didn't trust God enough to enter into this offer of rest that he was providing. And that whole entire generation, bar two blokes, died in the desert. Now God has spoken through his son about another, a better fulfillment of rest, to enter into this rest. And part of that maintaining, part of that entering into this restful vigilance is being shaped by the living word. From the outset of Hebrews, the author has made it clear that God is a God who speaks. He spoke long ago through the prophets, and now in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son. For the author of Hebrews, the word of God is both the recorded word scripture and those kind of things the prophets and those and the incarnate word jesus we've got to remember at this point uh, these churches these early churches they had the, the old testament and they have the life of jesus and the two form an inseparable witness about how god speaks you can't actually consider jesus accurately without scripture you can't have a jesus without the bible which is why the author keeps showing us how Jesus fills up and is this better version of the Old Testament of what has already been provided in the Word of God. A Jesus who doesn't comport with Scripture is more likely to be a little genie of your own making, whose whole existence is to be your personal aid, help you be a better pet owner, you know, help you realize, fulfill all your dreams, those things that have you enslaved. The author gives us two characteristics that describe the nature of the Word of God. Firstly, he says that it is living and active. And this highlights the uh, eternal, effective, personal agency of God's Word. It is never dead. It is never irrelevant. If God spoke something 3,000 years ago, it is just as active today uh, as, as it was back then. And this is made clear back in chapter 3, verses 7. When the author writes, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
present continuous tense. And then he quotes Psalm 95, a psalm recounting where God spoke to his people in the desert, but they didn't listen to him. You can see the themes here. As though it is current, as though it is written for right now. It's written hundreds of years ago, and he's quoting it like it's relevant now. And in this little kind of innocuous moment, the author validates Scripture as God-inspired. The Holy Spirit says... And describes scripture as being present and continuous in its nature. It may describe historic events, but it's timeless in its, in its personal potency and, and relevance. It may have been written like 3,000 years ago, but as you read it now, the Holy Spirit still speaks, is speaking, and asking you to consider Jesus in light of the full counsel of the word of God and your faith and all that Jesus himself personally has done. And Paul agrees. Inspired by the Spirit himself, he writes to Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof and correction, and for the training in righteousness. And the question is, are we listening to this? Are we allowing this word to shape and transform us and do its work in us? Of pointing to and providing rest in Jesus. Are we entering into his rest through the word? Furthermore, when the Spirit speaks through the Word, we actually meet God. We learn from God. We have fellowship with God. John Frame has uh, written a book called The Doctrine of the Word, and he says in his book, the Word of God is the personal presence of God. You meet in a person, not just text. There is another sense in which God's Word is alive and life-giving. God's speech is his activity. When he speaks, he creates. He, he brings life. And indeed, all of creation in your existence is a product of the active uh, word of God. The word active here, translated from the Greek word, this is going to blow your mind, energies, where we get the word energy from. It kind of sounds logical, doesn't it? The word of God is, is energetic. It's powerful. It doesn't just say things. It does things, and it does things like it exposes sin. It reveals truth. It gives light and wisdom. It's the word of God that brought Lazarus to life when Jesus commanded Lazarus to come out of his tomb. It's the word of God that calmed that wild sea when Jesus is in the boat, and he says, quiet, be still. Everyone just went flat. God's word may be contained in dry ink, but it is not a, a transcript of dead lifeless words it is where we encounter the living God his activity in our lives if you were to buy an autobiography say on uh, Tim Keller you would get to know about Tim Keller but you wouldn't meet him personally when you read the word of God or encounter the person of Jesus you personally meet with God he personally gets active in your life and the second, the second thing that the author here says is the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It turns out that uh, we don't read the Bible. The Bible reads us as the saying goes. This is what the author of Hebrews is pushing across the table. He describes the word of God as being sharper than a two-edged sword. As we read it, it's, it's reading us. It's dissecting us. Now, here's a little historical side note. Two-edged sword was used by the Romans and, and, and the Greeks to conquer the known world. This two-edged sword knew no opposition, no resistance. 
It's this metaphor that the Holy Spirit gives to describe the word of God. No other word can penetrate the human condition like scripture, like the person of Jesus. It untangles the human heart. It unearths sin like, like nothing else can. No other word can discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, exposing the condition of them, putting them up against the person and the work of Jesus. Naked and exposed, we realize how wicked we are. And then at the same time, you will also see how loved you are. How God wants to give you the same relationship with the Son that he has. How, how in Jesus there is rest from this endless turmoil of sin. Now, if you don't feel this in your heart, if neither Jesus or Scripture has, has confronted you, made you a little uncomfortable, but then, then filled you with comfort, then you are in very real danger of doing what Israel did in the desert. Just drifting from the word of God, doubting it, disbelieving it, and rejecting the living God. And you will do this by choosing other objects of faith, other objects of salvation, like being a better pet owner, a better husband, a better churchgoer, these kind of things. The Holy Spirit wields scripture like a Roman soldier wields a two-edged sword. To cut through the opposition of our hearts, to surgically remove sin and disobedience and to allow new uh, spiritual life and vitality for Christ to be the energy and the activity of our faith and our salvation. This is the grace supplied work of we rest in. But it's not a work of less lethargy or, or casualness. It's, it's a provided confidence that, that drives and changes and secures outcomes. Coming into contact with the word of God is as good as coming into contact with God. It graciously reveals who God is and who we are. There are no secrets before God. We have been fully outed for who we are and at the same time we are fully accepted because of our resting in Christ. And so now after this, after this confronting uh, part, the author moves to comfort us. The author returns to what he'd begun discussing in chapters 2 and 3, and, and that's the nature and the effect of Jesus' priesthood in our lives. The author returns to the themes of priesthood that he explored in chapters 2 and 3, and now he wishes to show that better priesthood of Jesus enables believers to persevere in their faith. And not to be casual, not to drift or sink, but rather to be bold and, and, and to be dangerous. And by dangerous, I mean you actually live as someone who has a, a faith in Jesus and that characterizes your life and, and all that you do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we pro profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us uh, in our time of need. The theme of priesthood and how Jesus relates to the office uh, as being a, a better 
bearer of that occupies a large part of the letter of Hebrews. It's kind of in there from about chapter 4 all the way through the middle of chapter 10 and there's this little small part somewhere, chapter 5 and 6, where that isn't the content. But high priests are prominent throughout all of scripture. From Aaron in Exodus 28 and onwards, we find priests at work on behalf of God's people. And chapter 5 kind of fills out some of the details. However, there is only one great high priest. And the author of Hebrews makes this distinction by virtue of where Jesus ascends, where Jesus enters into to do his priestly work, not in some man-made room, but into the heavens. Australian-born Anglican New Testament scholar Philip Hughes sums it up very nicely. He says, the greatness of this high priest, he's talking about Jesus, surpasses all others. And this is seen by the assertion that he passed through the heavens. That is to say, in contrast to the high priest of the Levitical order, who once a year passed from sight of the people as he took the blood of atonement into the earthly sanctuary, Jesus, our great high priest, at his ascension, passed from the sight of the watching apostles and entered once and for all into the heavenly sanctuary, there to appear on our behalf. Well, this ascending into heaven is not like when we send someone into space. It's not merely a journey from, from you know, one atmosphere in earth into another. This is Jesus transcending in the limits, limits of time and space. To execute his function as our high priest, he enters into the, the very eternal, uh, permanent and personal presence of God, not some replica here on planet Earth. And the reason the writer makes this distinction about the uniqueness, the greatness, this, the transcending, cosmic, uh, eternally better reality of Jesus' priestly role is because he's wanting to encourage us to have confidence in the greatness of this high priest. It's like, hey, you crazy Hebrews, why would you want to drift back toward a, a Levitical system with its imperfect, limited priests, its perpetual sacrifices, when, when, when this is now on the table, or actually up in the heavens? Or, or hey, you people of Freeway Baptist Church, why get all anxious and bent out of shape and start operating once again with performance-based security for, for saving faith when the one who secures your faith is a great high priest sitting in the very presence of God? You need to trust and rest in that fact. So hold fast to your confession, namely that the historical person of Jesus, and now this is the first time in the letter of Hebrews that the author links the historic person of Jesus to all of these outrageous titles and functions that he's been piling up, like great high priest and son of God. This Jesus is our confession, our boast and hope. And, and in, in that, because he's there already, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy, find grace in our time of need. If Jesus intercedes for you as high priest, he doesn't just grant you access to a building or a sacred place. He brings you into the very presence of God. You don't pray to a Mary or a Peter or some fairy at the end of the garden. You pray, Abba, Father. Intimacy, Abba, transcendent and great, Father. 
Tim Keller has this fantastic phrase. The only person who would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. The writer of Hebrews would say, brothers and sisters, you have that kind of access to God. Why would you want to float back to, to some other limited access to God? What have I got to do in order to meet with God? Know God, be accepted by God. What work, what great expression of piety or penitence must I do? Here is where the gospel of the Christian faith, the confession of the Christian faith stands unique. You do nothing. What you must do is rest and be represented by the work of another, the great high priest. But this high priest is not just some cosmically eternal transcendent priest. He is also the one who in every way can sympathize with our limitations, our humanness, our weakness. This is a comfort beyond reason. Here is, why, here is where gentle and lowly meets bruised reeds and, and smoldering wicks of, the, of our faith. This great high priest, the Son of God, who is far superior to Moses and Aaron, who is greater than angels, who currently sits in heaven, is Jesus of Nazareth, a human being in every sense, at, at every level, and is able to sympathize with your life on planet earth better than anyone else on planet earth for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet did not sin after everything that the author of the Hebrews has been piling up about how Jesus is better how God has spoken through one who is the radiance of God's glory, who upholds the universe with his, with his words, the heir of all things. Basically, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. He now brings it all back down to a street level, a very human level. This great high priest, rather than being removed from our human experience, is exposed to it, endures it, experiences it, experiences every aspect of what it is to be human. From hunger and thirst and tiredness to temptations to grasp power, prestige and privilege. Yet unlike every other person born into this world with human limitations, Jesus never allows the environments, his condition, his suffering or his savouring, his joys and triumphs to tempt him into sin. Never once did Jesus' affections and attractions depart from God as most worthy of trust, uh, God as most uh, obedience to God and most desirable. Now Jesus wasn't tempted with every distinct sin that ever existed. I kind of actually doubt that he was ever tempted with the kind of overt sin that we are like adultery and murdering and lying and stealing. It wasn't as graphic or as easy to identify as wrong. He was tempted to trust in his own authority and power to do good. And it was relentless. Through his hunger, thirst and tiredness, rejection and suffering, tempted to reach beyond the limits of his humanity to save himself. Just go outside the scope of God's work that he has for you. Seek autonomy from the Father. Think of the good you could do for humanity if you could just turn a bunch of you know, stones into bread for a bunch of hungry people. 
Seek autonomy. Seek self-rule. Relentless. Relentless. We have no idea what this is like. Because none of us has ever endured the full force of the powers of the principalities of this world to turn us in on ourselves and away from loving and trusting God. None of us has ever, without exception, turned to prayer and dependence on God uh, over sin or died in preference uh, and over sin, in victory over sin. And Jesus' suffering, Jesus in his suffering, and, and chapter 5 expands that, has experienced a type of suffering that goes way beyond anything we ever encountered. And therefore, he is uniquely qualified and equipped to be sympathetic every, to every temptation we encounter. In his humanity, this is what it means, in his humanity that he learned, via shared experience, he is not some aloof, transcendent God who has no idea about suffering, but one who, who shares in our humanity and has never failed at it. Have you ever known someone who is just like an overachiever? Who's, who's just great at everything? Who, whose godliness you admire a lot, but you never feel like they could ever relate to you? Never, never understand your struggles, your temptations? They, they just seem like they're so above it. You don't feel like you could ever approach them? That's not Jesus, our great high priest. Precisely because he has learned obedience. His perfect life uh, was given was his perfect life was given to him as he through the achieving it, through the limitations that we experience. It wasn't just something that was was given to him without any effort. It was not simply assumed because he was the son, but, but it was publicly witnessed. People saw it and bore witness to it. His perfect representation of humanity is a historical fact. His righteousness and faithfulness has been tested. So we know that his sympathy is real. We know that his care is genuine. But Jesus does more than sympathize. He sanctifies. He makes us right with God. His sinless life is offered in exchange for our sinful one. Here is a priest who is not just the mediator, but he is the means. Here is a great high priest who is both priest and sacrifice for his people. He has he's entered into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he is there reminding the Father that his blood has covered sins, so we cannot be condemned for them. This is our boast. This is our confidence, our rest that energizes us into faithful lives of obedience and perseverance, where our failings don't disqualify us, but increase our dependency on the living word. This morning, as we consider Jesus our great high priest, we do so around these tables, and these elements represent his sacrifice, his spilt blood for our atonement of sin, a broken body on our behalf, suffering death as our substitute that we might receive rest for our souls. Our sins exchange for his life of perfect love, his life of perfect devotion, his life of perfectly displaying what it is to live in relationship with the Father. Gentle and lowly so that we could be bold and lifted up. Communion is a living memorial. 
engaged with a living faith, energised by a living word at which we are spiritually nourished and encouraged to persevere in our faith by evoking memories of what Jesus has done and is doing in us and for us. As Jesus instructed his followers in Luke 22, that we are to perpetually and regularly participate in this meal of bread and wine in remembrance that Jesus' death on a cross and resurrection of, uh, to new life applies new spiritual realities of salvation to the lives of his believers. And as it does so, it provokes hope. Hope in a future secured by Jesus, who has gone before us, who, who, who awaits us. Hope in a rest that we were created for. But until then, he, he, he helps us to persevere. He, he intercedes on our behalf. So this morning as we consider Jesus, as we consider uh, the living word, as we consider the great high priest, why don't we come forward, we take this bread and this wine and it helps to evoke those memories in us. And then once we've come forward and you've just spent your own time and you've done business with God there, just hold on to the cup, take the bread, drink it, uh, take the bread, eat it, give thanks and hold on to the cup and we'll drink together as a symbol uh, of our unity together. Jesus, our great high priest, the one who is both the means of our salvation and the one who preserves us in our salvation, the one who has made us all uh, brothers and sisters and brings us together around the same confession of salvation in Christ. When we drink together as we remember this. Loving God, we thank you uh, that you did not leave us alone to work out who you are, to work out our salvation, but that you would send the Son into the world, world to, to be our means of salvation and to be the one as described as, as great high priest, the one who would intercede for us, the one who holds us in place and sustains us till um, a day where we are all uh, together around this, this banquet table free from sin still being served by uh, Jesus and our hearts look forward to that day and long for that day we give you thanks this morning uh, for your word pray that it would would just be nurturing away in our hearts to warm them with affection for you and we pray this in Jesus name amen <laughs>